Welcome to the Physio Perspective Podcast. We are physical therapy students simplifying sports, injuries, and the human body. The purpose of this show is for those who are interested in different sports injuries, but don't necessarily know much about them. Well, how's it going, guys? How's it going, guys? Uh, we're going to start off the show today with a little bit of hockey this morning. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't talked about hockey no, too much in the show. No, it's Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. So uh, Boston Bruins defenseman uh, Adam McQuaid has been out since October with a broken leg. Uh, with this injury, he is projected to actually miss around eight weeks of action. So he will be returning uh, pretty soon. But on the play itself, he was felled by a shot, struggled back to his feet, and then is actually hit by another slap shot which for those of you who don't know much about hockey is like the hardest hit on a puck that can occur. Basically, the um, player who hit it just like gets a really good wind up with his, with his stick. And it literally, he was aiming for the goal, I believe, but it, the defenseman got his leg right in the way. But after the puck was cleared, he was helped to the bench and then immediately helped through the tunnel. So we saw Gordon Hayward break his leg earlier in the year, and he will be unable to return until next season. So what is the main reason as to why McQuaid can make such a quick recovery. Yeah, so having a broken leg is really a bit of a loose term. Uh, there are three main bones that kind of make up the lower extremity of the body, which include the femur, which is like the thigh bone, essentially. And then there's also the tibia and fibula, which are the bones that are below the knee and above the ankle. Uh, you also have the patella in there, which is the kneecap. Um, but in McQuaid's case, he broke his right fibula, which is the smaller of the two long bones in the lower leg. The fibula actually doesn't even contact the ground at all, and the head of the bone... Uh, head of the fibula actually is easy to feel or palpate to see where it ends. Uh, it's essentially the big bump on the outside of your ankle, which is also known as lateral malleolus. Uh, we learned this this past summer, actually, so yep. so giving you guys a little bit of palpation tips there. <laughs> but um, anyway, basically because it doesn't touch the ground, the fibula doesn't receive the same amount of force or load that the tibia receives. Um, so last summer we also learned about uh, runners and how they kind of sustain microfractures. And then that, those little tiny microfractures in the bone can lead to actual stress fractures. But essentially, when you're running, um, the tibia kind of puts the load or the force up through it. And there's a thing connecting the two bones called the interosseous membrane. Um, and that actually sends the loads into the fibula. So you can actually see fractures of the fibula, uh, which don't even touch the ground at all while running. So really interesting stuff yeah, yeah so what does the process of having a fibula broken fibula look like so i know there are different types of fractures and what the rehab process looks like can you explain a little bit more yeah definitely um so in mcquade's case it wasn't an open fracture which means that the bone didn't pierce through the skin uh, this is actually very fortunate because with open fractures you have to worry about infections uh, and you will most likely see damage elsewhere in the body so he actually had a closed fracture where the bone was broken but the skin remains intact the ultimate goal of treating these fractures is to put the bone basically back into place, uh, control the pain, give it time to heal, try to prevent any potential complications that may arise. Uh, so physical therapy usually begins with, the an with ankle strengthening and mobility exercises. Then once the patient is strong enough to put weight on the injured area, walking and stepping exercises are pretty common. Uh, balance is also a vital part of regaining the ability to walk unassisted, which I think we kind of touched upon with uh, Hayward too. Yep, yep. Um, so good exercises there, wobble board exercises. Um, basically, it's kind of like they're standing on a board that's 
kind of like on a ball basically i think yeah a little uneven surface yeah essentially just that's that's a really good way to improve your balance i think that might be a little later on in mm -hmm. the process though yeah yeah cool i know we saw chase utley uh, i think it was a couple of years ago in the playoffs was it playoffs i think so yeah chase utley slid into second and broke the fibula of a, i believe it was a mets player or something so this is uh, very interesting it's a small bone it's it's right there on the side you, any kind of contact can break that that bone Definitely. for sure um so we're going to move into a topic that we've kind of been tiptoeing around a little bit recently. Yeah, yeah for um, sure. Chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, better known as. So we're going to we're going to dive right in. We talk a little bit about concussions and we're going to talk about this topic today. Yeah, so let's just start off with the basic questions. Uh what is it? Now, who does it affect? What do we know? What don't we know? Sure. Like I said, CTE stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Try not to say that three times <laughs> fast. <laughs> it's a neurodegenerative disease only diagnosable after death for now. So there's some research going into how, how, to, how we can diagnose it while somebody's still alive, which is, would be helpful moving forward. Um, it's caused by repeated trauma to the head. So um, CTE has been diagnosed in many people who all have a commonality of having a history of being, um, having repeated trauma to the head. So if you swallow sports, you may think of CTE as being only seen in NFL football players. I know that's been big in the news recently of the NFL. Um, but the diagnosis has been made in former National Hockey League NHL players, people who have experienced domestic abuse, people who are epileptic, people with developmental disabilities who frequently bang their head, soldiers who experience brain trauma while at war, and more. So this goes far beyond just the NFL, um, just to kind of give you guys an insight about CTE. Um, we know that people who have CTE always have had a history of many contacts, to the head. However, having many contacts to the head does not mean that a person will get CTE. So that's important to understand. Um, scientists remain unclear why two people with the same amount of exposures, contacts to the head, may show different long-term outcomes of brain damage. But it seems that some people are more resilient than others, and we don't really understand why. So that's that's the research that's going into right now. Yeah. So kind of along those lines, uh, we kind of discussed uh, in a previous podcast about subconcussive hits. Uh, but can you just tell me a little bit more about them and how do they contribute to CTE? Yeah, yeah, we talked about these um, these hits. So they'd be like headers in soccer, contacts and tackles in football, hitting the head, um, hockey checks to the boards, punches to the head in boxing. These type of lower, uh, not not necessarily lower, but more often seen in sports, hits to the head. These two contribute to CTE, and in fact, maybe even worse for an athlete because they feel fine and continue to play and take hits to the head at these lower impact loads. Whereas in the case of a symptomatic concussion, athletes may report um, signs of concussion to their parents, coaches, teammates, you know, athletic trainers, and they may be required to take time off. So the, these hits, lower impact hits, also play a role in CTE. Hmm, for sure. Uh, so I know that we can't diagnose CTE in living people currently, but what are some signs that a person could potentially have CTE? Sure. So before I get into the symptoms of CTE, there are actually four stages of CTE described by Dr. Ann McKee of Boston University, leading the charge there. Um, so st four stages, stage one, two, three, and four. So stage one, we see focal spots of tau protein build up in the brain, primarily around the frontal lobe, the front part of the brain. Stage two, tau protein begins to spread around the temporal lobe on the side. Stage three, the buildup begins to show deeper into the temporal lobe and also begins to be seen in the amygdala, which is involved in emotions, and the hippocampus, which is involved in memory. 
And you can start to see where this ties into this, the um, symptoms and long-term outcomes of CTE. And finally, stage four, wide, we see widespread tau buildup pretty much everywhere in the brain, and this is the most consequential stage. Um, I definitely encourage you all, if you're listening, to look up the stages of CTE and see the cross-sections of the brain with confirmed CTE. Um, you, can, you can clearly see the differences, especially between stages one and two and three and four, kind of on the extreme ends. Um, for really interesting stuff. But back to your question about CTE symptoms, they often begin to show many years following exposure and include changes in three major categories, cognition, behavior, and mood. And it also may progress to dementia, or a, which is a drastic change in personality, memory, reasoning, and other sorts of responses. So I wanted to tie in some current news about NHL, the National Hockey League, and CTE. So there are NHL players who have been speaking up about donating their brain to science as well. So kind of looking into more than just the NFL, um, other sports and other um, career paths that people may have CTE. So um, Craig Adams is at the forefront saying that he recently will definitely giving, be giving his brain to science. So to help understand CTE and the prevalence in lifelong hockey players like himself. He spent four years playing at Harvard um, 15 years, I believe, in the NHL. Um, he says that he hopes for the sport that CTE is not as prevalent in hockey as football, but he has his doubts based on his history. Of He's actually blacked out during games, and he's never had a diagnosed concussion. So that's pretty pretty crazy that he's never been taken out of a game despite having these pretty common symptoms of concussion. Yeah, I think it's a really cool thing that he's willing to donate his brain for science after he passes uh I know it's a tough thing for family members oftentimes to yeah. to go through, um, but I think it's important to you know be able to research this more because there is a lot more research that needs to be done on CTE, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a hard step to take, but I think it's important. These these people, these athletes, they need to you know step up the plate for the future of their sport, too, because you know, if, if parents start saying to their kids they can't play football because of these hits, and you know, it, it, gets, it gets tricky, but... Um, the more we understand, the better. So I believe that you know more people should be stepping up and donating their brains to science. It's important. Yeah, and, and the NHL actually seems to be even more kind of hush hush about concussions and CT than the NFL, uh, thinking that they're that playing their sport couldn't be any worse than playing football. Yeah, yeah, but, but I I don't know. It's hard for me to say. I mean, in NFL they they have practices too where they contact head. NHL not as much probably, but. Um, it, it's it, we need to know more. There's more to be known, and the more people that step up and donate their brains, and the more we, this is talked about, the better. So we can better, you know, gra- get a grasp around how we can make sports safer, and you know, just better for everybody. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so a little bit shorter of an episode this week, but yeah. you know, I think that's a that's a good thing sometimes. Okay. So uh, yeah, next week our episode's going to be a little bit different. Actually, we're going to kind of go away from the main topics. Uh, just to give you guys some overall advice about PT school and the profession as a whole. Sounds good. Yeah, we're excited for it. Um, we have some pretty good insight. Obviously, we both go to University of Wisconsin-Madison, so we have a little bit, not that, that diverse of experience uh, applying, but hopefully we can give you guys some tips and advice into getting into PT school. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next week. Take care.